This is Change in the Coalfields, a podcast by Coalfield Development, all about change in Appalachia. What change has happened, what change is happening, and what change still needs to happen. I'm your host, Brandon Dennison, founder and CEO of Coalfield Development. I'm really excited to have with us Mr. D. Davis. D. is the founder and president of the Center for Rural Strategies. He has been active on many boards and many efforts on behalf of rural America generally, Appalachia specifically, and also done a lot of work in for the arts and journalism sectors. I'm not being flattering when I say D. is really something of a living legend when it comes to uh, Central Appalachia and creative endeavors here in the region. So, D., thank you so much for your time today. Today. Yeah, I don't think it's flattering. I just think that means I'm old. <laughs> it's good to be here, Brandon. Uh, I'm happy to be in this conversation. Tell us, did you grow up in Kentucky? I did. I grew up in Hazard, which is um, 30 miles from Whitesburg, where I live and work now. I, I know when um, when I was moving from Hazard to Whitesburg that that would be good. That would improve the IQ of both towns. <laughs> and so I think I've endeavored to uh, do that. Uh, and and. And growing up in Hazard, was your family connected to the coal industry? Not really. I mean, everybody's connected uh, in some ways, but my grandfather came in on the railroad. He was an orphan who came up from a lot of the people from the uh, coal operations in Alabama. So he came from Georgia and Alabama working on the railroad and played a saxophone in a honky-tonk band and studied electronics uh, by mail and ended up creating a radio repair shop and then the cable system for Hazard. Uh, my other grandfather was a merchant and the two of them kind of joined in partnership uh, when my folks got married and created a furniture store. And And so I grew up in the moving furniture and the, in the furniture business from the time I was in seventh grade, I delivered linoleum rugs and warm morning heaters to a lot of families, a lot of coal mining families all around the the area. So we were all pretty connected to the coal industry in lots of different ways. And I can remember being a kid when everybody was burning coal and you walk down the streets, main streets and and hazard and and you'd feel, you know, you'd see the billowing uh, smoke and you smell it. And then you would see a lot of miners who've been crippled up. There was no no way to take care of them other than they'd be on the street with a coffee can shaking it, you know, waiting for people to drop coins in as they pass by. And and at that time, you know, pre-Walmart, downtowns were where everybody was. And so they it would be like pushing through a mall, I guess now, or somewhere three, four people across all the time on the streets. And it was it was pretty crowded. So it's a it's a different era now when you go down on these main streets in Kentucky or West Virginia or Virginia and you see them all hollowed out and you see the streets empty when you try to explain that to somebody you feel like a relic. Mm. Did your family think of themselves as entrepreneurs? Uh, I think they they probably just thought of themselves as trying to make a living, try to lead a de- 
decent life. You know, I had one granddad who took care of me, you know, he played second base on the city ball team. And, and, you know, my dad would listen to records about salesmanship. And so I think he, you know, he wanted to be able to look in the eye and sell you a television set or a mattress. And my other grandfather who ran the radio shop and, and did the cable system, it was just a, since he was from the South, it was a gathering place. So many people in the coal fields came from places like Alabama and Georgia, and they would congregate at his store and just talk Southern. You know, they loved to hear the accent and talk to each other. And and I think both black and white would get there and, and they would recount the news of the day. And it didn't seem like it was substantially different from anybody else's news, except it came in a different language. And uh, I remember getting to sit in his store and just kind of all that conversation and I value it now. Would they talk politics or would they stay away from politics? No, I mean, they talk everything. Uh, I spent a lot of time around older men listening to politics from the time I was in uh, grade school, I think. And uh, then by the time I was in high school, I was working in different campaigns. And so I valued uh, listening to these, I guess it was problem solving in a different way, what the intricacies were of getting out the vote or why somebody should be for this person and not that person. And, and even up to uh, buying half pints to give out on election day. So I think back to all that time. And to me, it's kind of as growing up here and being around all that was like getting to go to Disneyland, right? It was like being able to be in rich conversations and to see history unfold. I asked the question because I feel like today in community development, there's so much focus on entrepreneurship and maybe an assumption that it's it's harder to do in an Appalachian context than other places. I don't personally think that's true. I just maybe it looks a little bit different here. I, I think as a people, we have the entrepreneurial vein. Uh, maybe we just need better systems to, to draw that out. Yeah, I'm, I think people have the instinct, you know, how to make a buck, how to get your goods and services to market, how to tell the story so that uh, somebody will want to trade with you. I think all that is is a kind of a community transaction. It's a cultural transaction and it's a business transaction. How we find a way to take care of each other, look after each other and make a buck at the same time. So you are a fantastic writer. I've read over the years a, a lot of what you've written and still write. I'm curious how you, as a youngster, how you came to love writing and words and reading and storytelling. I, I, maybe you just gave us a little bit of insight. I wonder if you can go deeper on that. <laughs> well, I grew up in a family of musicians and I didn't have the gift, right? There were uh, singers and pickers and uh, people who could navigate that world. But what I always loved was people telling stories. And even from the first grade on, if if a teacher started telling a story, I would go into some land of enchantment. I would just depart from uh, my surroundings. And I, I can remember teachers saying, you're a good listener, or he's a good listener. And it would not be something I could control. It was something I couldn't uh, avoid. And I think in some ways, just loving to hear people tell stories made me want to tell stories and made me want to lift up stories that other people were good at telling. And so I, 
I think in a way, one of the great benefits of living in a place like Appalachia from Pennsylvania to Alabama is that there are all these people who have a cool way of talking about life and experience and challenge and not that they don't have good ways of talking about it in Chicago or the Bronx or in Paris, but nonetheless, there's a particular way, the language we grew up with. And so you're getting to hear stories in that language um, are comforting and encouraging. Did taking the storytelling craft and applying that in the written form, was that easy and seamless for you or is it harder, harder to get them written down? Well, I, I don't think it's easy. Um, writing's not easy. It's, it's always kind of trying to pull something out. Uh, at least for me, but I, I think that if it's what you enjoy, if it's what you, you know, still, if I sit down to write something, I can turn around and it's three hours later, four hours later, and I won't have realized that the time has passed. And so I think it's engaging and I, and, and I, I do love that. That's about what all of us could hope out of a work life, right? To have something we enjoy so much that three, four hours pass and we didn't realize it. Yeah, that's right. And and somebody doesn't come by and wrap you on the knuckles and say, uh, where have you been? So that's that's <laughs> the other end of it. You grew up in Hazard. When did you move to Whitesburg? I came over to Apple Shop several times. And uh, I guess in a way, uh, I think I came three different times, once to work on films and once to work on a magazine. And then later as president of Apple Shop and did some different things and then ended up uh, being uh, executive producer of the film and television part of it. And and uh, ended up working there from off and on for maybe 25 years. So it was a lot of a lot of time. And so first time I came, I was 22, I think. Then we started Real Strategies about 20 years ago. So I just moved down the street. Just in case folks listening aren't familiar, could you just say a little bit about what Apple Shop is, what it does? Apple Shop is a, it's a cultural center that started as a film workshop to train young Appalachian people in the filmmaking craft for jobs in an industry that turned out wasn't here. So it was it was once again training people for jobs they'd have to leave to uh, enjoy. Early on, it was reincorporated from Community Film Workshop of Appalachia to Apple Shop as not just training center, but as a production facility. And then later people came with ideas, start a theater company, start a record company, start a magazines, photography project, a radio station. And, and so it grew as a kind of a way to document Appalachian life and to create artifacts and documents of the experiences of people who lived here. And there were people from West Virginia and Virginia and Tennessee who would find their way to be part of it. And that enriched the experience, I think. And, and my wife, who I met there, made the film about the Buffalo Creek flood and, you know, the, and also her film, Chemical Valley is about Institute and the chemical industry in West Virginia. So, you know, I, I think I'm one county away from West Virginia. So we seem pretty close. And, and then my granddad, when he was bringing the cable system and we always got West Virginia TV in Hazard. So I grew up watching the same uh, ball games that uh, people in uh, Charleston and Huntington were watching. OK. And did you you went to UK? Is that right? I did. I I went to UK and the University of Pittsburgh, but yeah, UK is where I started out the community college in Hazard, which was then part of the university system. And then 
And I went on there. I've never really lived any place except where I went to school and, and back here in the mountains. And, and so I'm on the road a lot and it's, I enjoy, uh, I used to enjoy when I was on the road a lot before the sickness and I get to see a lot of the world, but it, it's nice to come back here. I noticed on your bio, there's something about an arts festival in, in Brisbane. Is that Brisbane, Australia? Yeah. Yeah. I'm on the board of a outfit called Feral Arts, which is, um, a wonderful institution where it started out as a as a way to use communication software to solve problems, particular problems between indigenous community and farmers who had the had claim on the same land and had no way to talk to each other. So they created a way to tell stories so that they could hear each other's stories without creating a brouhaha. And then they really evolved into a way to engage communities and artists around the country. And it's, that's a big country. You know, it's about the size of the lower 48. And so uh, not as many folks, but it's a big, sprawling, uh, interesting place to be. And I've enjoyed getting to go there to learn and, and to listen to stories. Do you feel like your presence internationally and, and your travel internationally, the more you've been exposed to different cultures, different places, has it changed how you look at Appalachia or how you think about Appalachian problems? Or Well, some ways, yeah, I remember at Apple Shop, we were showing films uh, at the Rotterdam uh, Film Festival uh, one time and they were kind of doing a retrospective of Apple shop films and the guy from Bulgarian TV came up and I'm sure he was a spook, right? I mean, he's in Bulgaria, he's some kind of spy. And he, he was just like tears in his eyes. He said, he, he'd never seen a picture of American life where people had chickens and, you know, to see somebody with chickens in the yard made him feel like uh, connected to Americans in ways that he had no uh, clue that, uh, that people lived here. And so in, in a way, I think you sort out what's different and what's the same. And, you know, people are people everywhere. Uh, I had a radio show once. Uh, and, um, there would be this guy who would call in, come, you know, call in every four or five months. And he, he was telling me, he wanted to tell the story about aliens coming in and they were all going to land in Southern California and they were going to, uh, have a broadcast system that was going to tell, talk to everybody in the world at the same time. And I would engage him and ask him about people's lives on different planet and, uh, you know, what kind of pickups did they drive? Things like that. So I, I think in a way, people are people pretty much all over and they have different sets of experiences and different ways to talk about it. They're facing the same challenges. How do you make a living? How do you raise your kids? How do you get a cold beer at the end of the day? You know, Australia has a lot of extraction, at least parts of it, similar to Appalachia or, or parts of out West. Do, do you are there any key similarities or differences with other extractive areas that you visited? In uh, lots of ways, because there's so much coal in Australia and because they're so close to the Chinese market, which has been most robust coal market, that they have continued there even when a lot of European countries or other countries were cutting back on production and consumption. And though Australia has cut back on consuming coal, they certainly have created these big mines and big systems to export it. And it's been a, a huge part of their political landscape because even when the industry 
has had a lot of kind of controversy or hit the skids in terms of national acceptance. You've seen politicians going around with a lump of coal and talk about men's jobs and how important it is. And that seems to win the political argument with voters in the same way that we see it here. I mean, the reality now is the coal industry is somewhat necrotic here in the central Appalachian coal fields. I saw a couple of coal trucks the other day and it's like, all of a sudden I'm stunned, right? But the power of that message of miners, people who working hard, paying their taxes, pitching in, it's very hard to create a kind of a message that would deny them the opportunity to do their work, even if the work's no longer there. We're cultural miners, right? We are in the same way that if you go to Kansas and not that many people are farming anymore, but they are cultural miners. If you go to the Northwest, there's not that many people logging, but they are cultural timber people. And and in some ways, I think how we adjust to what's next. I, I was thinking to about seventh and eighth grade science back in Hazard and my teacher, Little Dacker Combs, where we were, our school, we could look across to the railroad yards and we could hear the clang of, of the trains during school. And I remember him saying, if they would discharge 15 cents a coal car for every load of coal they take out of here, We'd have enough money in our schools to have Bunsen burners on every desk. And it's like, I so wanted the Bunsen burner on my desk. I would probably just lit the hair on fire of the girl in front of me. But I was like, that was so exciting. And I thought about, you know, so I, early on, I was a real advocate of severance taxes and ways. And, you know, when they did bring severance taxes in Kentucky, it, it was very exciting. First, they were going to create new ways for development and they were going to keep it out of the hands of local politicians, but that eroded. And before long, they were buying ball shoes and, you know, to make sure that when teams would go play in Louisville, they wouldn't look poor. And, you know, it was like all of a sudden the idea of infrastructure or capacity investment that could could actually change, transform our life here ended up just being putting all your money in a 82 Mercury Monarch that's going to be on blocks, you know, someday. And I think in some ways that's hard to be able to make the kind of investment that's really going to pay off because the world's changing. You, you, it's a risk. It's, you know, you're betting on something. But the other thing is in a place like ours where there is so much need and people have lived hard, they deserve a good shot and they deserve a good living. It's hard to know what's the smartest investment. In your role as a journalist, as a researcher, as an Appalachian person who's been involved in campaigns at different points in time, you know, there's a stereotype that Appalachia has a lot of uh, corruption, maybe you know, more so than other parts of the country might experience. Is that fair? I mean, has corruption held us back as a, as a region? There's a great book on rural child poverty called Worlds Apart, written by Cynthia Duncan, I think is what it says on the book. And what this book looks at is at the Mississippi Delta, at Appalachia, and New Hampshire. And it looks at these different rural areas and why child poverty is bad in Mississippi, why it's bad in Eastern Kentucky, and why it's not bad in New Hampshire. And the most salient part for me was that in these poor areas like the Delta and Appalachia, when people are getting by, we have a tolerance for, oh, that guy needs a job, or 
let's just not collect this bill. You know, those those folks are not doing good. And so there are these little petty corruptions where one or two might not have been too bad. And it might not be so different than what they're doing in, in Chicago or, or other urban neighborhoods. But the margins are so low in our places. We might have enough to get by and to do well. But if we start knocking down, we end up not being able to take as good care of ourselves as we need. And, and in New Hampshire, where she looked, she saw that there was a very high intolerance of any kind of corruption. And that and though those communities weren't wealthy, they were able to generate enough to take care of schools and roads and infrastructure. So I don't know. Uh, I don't think we're any more corrupt than other places, but I do think we have developed a tolerance over an aversion to dealing with small sums disappearing. Sometimes it even origin originates with good intentions. Uh, what one person calls corruption, you know, another person might call a good friendship, right? I mean, yeah, let's just help. I'm, I just need to help that guy out. And I think uh, Sinclair Lewis said every label's a libel. You know, I don't want to say it's like this everywhere and every community, but I just say that uh, as a general way of looking at it, I think we could be tough on ourselves. You work on development. You had all these successes. And we look at a lot of rural communities around the country and, and across the borders. And the kinds of things that we see might be slightly different, but probably not unusual to you. But there was a time when you had this traditional industry like coal or farming that you that would keep the communities going. And then when people saw that it was going to disappear, they started investing in different kinds of widget factories and ways that they could either subsidize or attract an industry from a, a different kind of community that would come in for cheaper wages. And now we're in a situation where the widgets are all being made in some other country. Our traditional industry is is falling on hard times. So when I think about what's really available and what can be the driver in the next manifestation of the American economy in a knowledge-based economy, what I really see is that our advantage is taking care of ourselves, taking care of our communities. If we can make our communities the best communities to live in, well, that gives us an edge. There are a lot of people who would love to live in West Virginia. A lot of people have had to leave West Virginia because they couldn't make a living. There's a lot of people who've left Kentucky and Virginia and Tennessee that love to come back if they could just get a few things straight. You know, if there was uh, some amenities, if there was the broadband and good health care and good uh, schools and some kind of cultural life that made it entertaining in a way in an economy where more and more we're going to approximate density by using technology and where we're going to be creating the next industries from our laptops then the real opportunity to create new industry doesn't have to be tied to one location or one industry in the same way that it was before. And if you look at really what signifies prosperity in a lot of communities, it's really value of land, value of homes. Is if, if you have a place that people want to live, if they're coming into your place, then you're going to have those values go up and you're going to 
be able to transform personal wealth. And so in a way, we made a lot of mistakes, right? We thought that coal was going to be around for longer than it was. And we didn't really spend as much time thinking about what would happen afterwards. And we sent a lot of kids to school and we built a lot of small businesses and we bought a lot of 84 Mercury's that are on blocks. And so it wasn't like we were terrible people or not that smart. We just, we took a chance and, and this is how it came out. And now we've got to take a different kind of chance. We have to imagine the trajectory. This is a good place to live for our kids. What we have to do if we're going to bring that about. And I think part of that is trust in our own communitarian instincts, trust in our, ourselves to look after each other, to help each other, to make a place good to live in to try to use the precious resources that we do get from our tax base, from investments like we're now seeing with the American Rescue Plan, and use that money smartly. Use that money not for next week or for next year, but to use it in a way that'll benefit folks who will come along next. And it needs to be attractive for all different kinds of people, right? I mean, I, I, I wonder... Over the course of your lifetime, have you seen Appalachia get more welcoming or, or less welcoming? Talking about diversity here uh, or a mix of the two? When I got to Whitesburg, it was pretty white. The Hazard was the most diverse town in the coal fields. You mentioned your, your grandpa's radio shop. People would gather and talk. Yeah, that's both, right. You said both white and black, right? That's right. And, and my grandmother, saintly woman who grew up in, in Alabama, she would have a a little table in a dining nook and uh, I would go in and listen to stories and there would be all these women black and white there telling stories, drinking coffee, smoking viceroys and old goals. And I was just fascinated in case, you know, they'd let me have a cup of coffee with milk and sugar in it. And I would just sit there and listen to them gabble on and it enriched my existence for sure. And so when I got here and I was surprised, I mean, I lived for playing basketball, you know, every day after work, I would just try to get down, play ball, and I, I play ball with people in the community. And, and I would notice when it was out white that there was a, a lot of ethnic slurs and it, it was disturbing, but it's also like I'm a stranger. I just wouldn't try to model good behavior, but I, I didn't want to confront everybody every time I heard something. But the other thing is you're paying attention and, you know, over time, it changes, you know, and people play ball. That's pretty rough talk anyway, and brutal to each other. You know, it's 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 smack talk, but it's uh, it's humor. It's it's way to welcome everybody. And you just saw the change over time as the game would get diver more diverse. The language would all change. And then even the jokes and stories and the meanness would change, you know, where you would hear me racial meanness in, say, the 80s. By the 90s, that was kind of had had really mostly disappeared. And, and then, you know, by the 2000s, you you wouldn't hear. I mean, somebody said something about homosexuals. You would somebody would stop them. You know, as a lot of kids went to college. You know, I play ball with a bunch of kids who did play college ball, and they would come back, or you know, it would be minors and different guys. It just changed, and and to me, it was something I was always monitoring, and it made me feel much better about the community I lived in to see this 
evolution, you know, is like I was just uh, trying not to fall over with these guys. And so uh, as a as an observer, I, I think that I've seen a lot of changes and I think those have been mostly for the good. There's a lot of meanness. You know, there's there's I'm not saying that that Appalachian culture is woke, but I think if it comes down to basic looking after each other, helping each other, people don't really draw these lines of distinction. And, and you know, I keep thinking about I was getting out of the car to go to the grocery store one day and I saw this guy walking and he just had this enormous pride. And I was like, what is going on with this guy? He's just coming, you know, you see him above these cars, two or three, and he's just walking so proud his head up. And I'm, it, something seemed different. And then following right behind him is about a three-year-old African-American girl, which was obviously his granddaughter, and the pride of being there at the grocery store together, just, you know, it lifted his life up, and it made me feel like there's um, there is a welcoming, inclusive nature in our communities if we nurture it, if we nurture it and we don't give in to the meanness. Well, D, you have lived a, a rich life and you have given so much. I wonder if there's anything I should have asked you that I didn't think of or any any thoughts on change in the coal fields of Appalachia that you would like to share before we wrap up. I don't think any of us know for sure what's going on. And if you had asked me 20 years ago what was going to happen, I might have got some of it right. But I think my, my hope is that we can build greener, smarter, more inclusive communities and that there are a lot of communities in the world have gone through what we did, you know, what we are going through right now, places, and a lot of them have, have succeeded wildly beyond what they could have predicted. A big part of that was taking care of their place, looking after their own place, looking after each other in a world where we think we have to create something and sell it or, or we don't have value. We're missing the bigger themes of history, which I think we're going to be able to endure if we can create communities that people want to be in. Great note to close on, Dee. Thank you for your time. Thank you for all you've done for our region and, and just for who you are. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you, Brandon. All right. Take care. Change in the Coalfields is a podcast created by Coalfield Development at the West Edge Factory in Huntington, West Virginia. This episode was hosted by Brandon Dennison and produced and edited by JJN Multimedia. Become a part of our mission to rebuild the Appalachian economy by going to our website, coalfield-development.org, to make a donation. You can email us anytime at info at coalfield-development.org and subscribe to our newsletter for up-to-date information on the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching for Coalfield Development. Check back soon for more episodes. 